Well, I'm excited to kick off our Christmas series this year, but I'm going to kick it off in a way that might surprise some of you because today we're going to dig into a genealogy or a list of names. And if you're old enough that you grew up with the old King James Bible, then you remember this was a list of begats with so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so until your mind just begins to drift Today, I want to show you what you don't want to miss in this genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah. By Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Skip to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Well, here's the first thing I want you to get from this passage. Number one, God's not in the business of protecting or promoting the right kind of image. Oh, human beings are all about image, right? All about image. God is all about putting on display his glory and his grace in the midst of our mess. His glory and his grace in the midst of our mess. And so that's why the Bible writers don't ignore or edit out the embarrassing people and the shockingly sinful moments that his people don't look or act anything like we would expect them to. So here's what you need to understand to appreciate this about our passage. Whenever the Jews did a genealogy, and it was often, they were into family, they were into genealogies. Whenever the Jews did a genealogy, it was never a complete list. It was always very selective, leaving lots of people out. Why? I'll tell you why. Because a genealogy in those days was like a resume is to us. It's how you put your best foot forward. It's how you would show people who you are and why they should listen to you or respect you. I know our day it's more about money and education. That was not the deal in their day. It was family. It was legacy. It was heritage. This is why you should listen to me. This is why you should respect me. And so you didn't want anything on that resume that was a blot or a blemish. Think about it this way. If you, and you don't have to stand if I'm about to describe you. Just sit there awkwardly. If you flunked out of the University of Cincinnati... And then later finished your BA at the, at the University of Kentucky, you just might leave that first experience off your resume. 
Just not mention that. Got my BA at UK. If you dig, you'll find that I flunked and played, you know, some war game all night long with my roommate. But I did finish. You just might leave that off your resume. And that's what they were doing with genealogies. And so in light of that, as the way they think this way about genealogies as a resume, you would expect, would you not? The birth record of King Jesus, our Savior, to read like a veritable who's who of some of the most godly and holy people who ever lived. And you would expect the embarrassing skeletons of shock and shame to be conveniently left out. But that's not what the Holy Spirit does. It's not what the Holy Spirit does. In fact, this is the beginning of the New Testament, right? Here we are in the first chapter, first book, first verse of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1 actually sets the tone for the New Testament, for the entire New Testament, that comes back to this theme over and over And over and over, God's amazing grace in the midst of our horrific sin. You'll see it over and over and over and over. Here's why. Because think about it. It's only when you do see in vivid detail the horror of who we actually are. That the glory of who he is and what he's done for us shines brightest. Right? Our culture is all about exalting us and puffing us up and puffing us up and puffing us up. But as you do that, you tend to think, yeah, God saved me. He should have. He did good to get me on his team. If you did any shopping for jewelry this Christmas season, how do they display jewelry? They don't put gems on a white surface so that you can't hardly tell the difference. What do they do? You look in the case and that gem is laid against black velvet, something dark. What do they want? Contrast. So that it pops. It stands out. Oh, it's only. God is not rubbing our nose in it. God is not trying to make us feel so bad that we think, oh, But he knows you will never be interested and you will never be grateful for who he is and what he's done until you truly know who you are. And it's who we are, not just certain who's. All of us, all of us, all of us. So let me show you. It starts here in Matthew 1 and sets this tone and it just stays this way. But let me show you another example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you find an example of what a New Testament, new covenant of grace resume for the people of God looks like. Go there. I think they printed it in the bulletin, but I wish they hadn't because I want you to turn in your Bible. An actual Bible so that you can mark stuff. Or if you've got it on your app, you can do whatever that cool thing is you do because I don't understand that. But I hope you can circle something electronically. Otherwise, get rid of that and get a real Bible. But I digress. First Corinthians chapter 1. Stuff to mark here. Oh, this is a New Testament, New Covenant resume. What it looks like for the people of God. First Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise. 
according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Two of my favorite words in the entire Bible next. Say it with me. But God. Say it louder. But God. God. Say it at every campus. But God. Someone told me at the other campus they never answer my questions. You know who you are. I want you talking right now. But God chose. Oh, look what he chose. This is going to shock you. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. You know what he's saying? It's like we go from this, foolish, not wise, weak, not strong, low and despised, and in case you're not getting it, even things that are not. Guess what? The people in the family of God are usually just not what the world's looking for. You're not. What the world looks for, who the world chooses, what the world thinks it's all about, it's just not, not, not. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Why does he do it this way? Foolish instead of super wise. Weak instead of strong. Low and despised are not. He's going to give us the purpose clause now. So that no human beings might boast in the presence of God. Listen to me. God is not all about image. But let me show you something else we can get from this genealogy. Number two, God loves to shatter our social and self-righteous categories. Most human beings, it's one of the things that makes us humans instead of dogs and cats and plants. We just constantly are contriving categories, categories, categories. And I know we don't live in a country that so much promotes that, like India or others with a caste system. But guess where that caste system of categories lives strongest? Right in our little minds and hearts. Regularly, human beings have categories of who's in, who's out, who's better, who's not, who's good, who's bad, who's got a leg up on someone else. God loves to shatter our social and self-righteous categories. So you got to understand that this was a shocking genealogy on so many levels. Shocking genealogy on so many levels. Because so many of their social and, and cultural categories are being blown up. Blown up right here in these first verses by the names that are included that they would never have included, that they would have left out. And here's why. God was not coming into this world by his son to validate and accelerate what was already happening in the world. He was coming to do something radically new that the world had not yet seen, had not yet experienced radically new. What am I talking about? Well, in this genealogy, first of all, you can see a new place for women. You can see a new place for women in this genealogy. Here's what you need to realize about the Jews. They did not include women in the genealogy. Look at me. Ever. 
ever. It would just say Abraham to Jacob to Isaac as if these men birthed children on their own. Like, what about the women? Don't talk about them. I mean, it was a list of men, 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 fathers, men, fathers of the nation, patriarchs, men, 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 men. They did not include women. But right here in Matthew chapter 1, he lists five women. And four of them are all packed into verses 3 to 6. So that I want you again to have your Bible open to Matthew 1 because I want you to circle them. I want you to mark them, you guys. I want you to mark them in your Bible because these are gems. These female names are gems that stand out and sparkle like lights on your Christmas tree. These are nuggets of grace that signal a new day, a new way, a new covenant. Verse 3, Tamar. Oh, there's a backstory, and we're going to get to it in a minute. Tamar, circle it, mark it, star it. Verse 5, Rahab and Ruth. Ooh, there's a backstory we're going to get to. Verse 6, the wife of Uriah. That is just an awkward and painful way of saying Bathsheba. And we'll talk about why the Holy Spirit didn't say Bathsheba, but said it this way. And verse 16, Mary, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, Mary. And here's the other thing. Of all four Gospels, we've got four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all telling a similar story, but they all had different audiences. Matthew is the one that was writing most to a Jewish audience. That we, that's why you will find him including so many genealogies. The Greeks would have thought, what in the world? I don't need all these names. The Jews would have said, love it. Give me more genealogies. So he's got lots of genealogies and he quotes from the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer. This book was directed most to a Jewish audience. Which is why these five female names would have startled them and stood out to them. Whatever the Jewish Hebrew word is for woe, they would have said it. Huh? Huh? When they saw this, they're like, whoa, what is going on here? Why are these names included? We don't list women. What are you doing, Matthew? In fact, I know it sounds awful, you guys, but the world at that time, not just Jews, the world at that time had little regard for women and saw them as barely, barely more than property. That was the view of women very often all over the world. Some Jewish men even prayed every morning. Get this. Imagine hearing your husband pray this in the den. Be such a blessing. Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, not a slave. And not a woman. Yikes. Wow. And so into a social and cultural world like that. The genealogy of our Savior and the grace of our God signaled a new place for women in this new covenant of grace. That God was establishing through his son, Jesus. But I want you to notice something else. Because it's not just the inclusion of women that is startling. It's the background 
and circumstances of so many of these women that is so shocking. See, when you know, and you got to know your Old Testament, when you know who some of these women are, oh, then you realize you don't just see a new place for women. You see a new place for what the world would consider outcasts. A new place for what the world would consider outcasts. Listen to me. Four of these women, four of these women that are listed, in some ways were considered outcasts in that day. Two of them were widows, Tamar and Ruth. In fact, Tamar was widowed twice, not once. And it was not a kind day. I mean, I know you think things are hard today. It was much harsher back then for women and for widows. They did not have a soft spot in their heart for widows. If you were widowed, you were marginalized, and you were economically crushed. If you had no family, you had no hope. If you didn't have a husband and you didn't have a son, tough luck. Two of these women were widows. Oh, but it gets far worse than that because Rahab was a prostitute. You can read about it in the Old Testament where she's the one in Jericho that hid the spies. Rahab was a prostitute and Tamar buckle up pretended to be a prostitute in order to have sex with her father-in-law if you're not reading the old testament turn off some of the daytime drama there's drama in the old testament you can find it right there it's pretty racy it's like what Tamar pretended to be a prostitute in order to have sex with her father-in-law that doesn't usually get you on a list of who's who and you thought your family was messed up Imagine the tension during the holidays. (laughs) Board games and hot cocoa just can't make up for that. (laughs) Everyone's thinking, oh, you, her, oh. Tense, mess. Two of these women were confirmed liars and three of them were Gentiles, which was a horrifying thought to the Jews who considered all Gentiles, anyone outside of the nation of Israel, to be a dog. So cut off and so far from the promises of God that there was no hope for you. Oh, but it gets worse. Ruth was not just a Gentile, but a Moabite. And if that doesn't ring any bells for you, she was from a country that had been so cursed by God that no descendant from the Moabites was to enter the temple for 10 generations. And yet here she is on the resume of our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a lot of shock and drama packed into these verses, verse 3 to 6, because we've got prostitutes, pretend prostitutes, liars, Gentile dogs and someone who's been cursed all on the resume of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what in the world is the Holy Spirit doing right here? I'll tell you what he's doing. The Holy Spirit is throwing his spotlight on these women. And he's saying, I don't look for the kind of people you do. Stay with me. In fact, I prefer to use the ones that you would discard and pass by. It's not an exception. So 
get this, the Bible doesn't show us every now and then God can really do an amazing work and take a situation that we'd say, huh, and make something of it. No, it's not every now and then. It's his go-to. It's his mantra. This is what he prefers. Wow. Why? So that nobody gets confused about who has the power or who should receive the glory for what he's doing in our world. He prefers it. He prefers it. Let me show you how the Apostle Paul unpacks this even further in Ephesians 2. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. The Apostle Paul unpacks this some more for us in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11. So he's reminding believers in Ephesus. These would have been largely Gentiles, not Jews. Ephesus was a messed up city known for witchcraft, known for horrific immorality because they had the temple of Diana there. And, and part of the worship in the temple of Diana was, was to actually have sex with prostitutes. These people had been saved out of a mess. Here's his letter to them. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember. Look at me. You realize how often the Bible will say Remember. I'm reading through the Bible this year, and so I just rolled through 1 Peter and 2 Peter. He uses that word all the time. I'm not afraid to remind you. I'm not afraid to remind you. I want to remind you. You know what our biggest problem is as human beings? Most often, we don't need a new truth. We need to remember the ones he's already taught us and get it out of cold storage and put it on the front burner and warm that thing up and say, oh, my goodness, that's right. That's right. You can so quickly go from, oh God, thank you for saving me. I was such a mess and our hearts are so wicked. In just a few years, you can forget who you were and you can be looking down on someone else and say, I can't believe. Remember. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you, here's where we were when God found you. If you're here and you're a Christian and you're saved, you've been born again, you've been forgiven, you have new life, you have a robe of righteousness, you have no condemnation on you right now. Here's where you were before God did that. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Separated. Again, it's kind of like a resume, right? Separated, alienated, strangers, no hope. Without God in the world. There's nobody here that God saw you already moving towards him. God saw you cleaning yourself up. God saw there was great potential in you. So he chose you. God saw you checking off some boxes. God saw you not doing what some other people are doing. That's not how anyone gets saved. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now. In Christ Jesus, you who were far off. How did he change your life? How did he? You who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been brought near. 
by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He made peace between you and God. Only Jesus could have done this. For he himself is our peace who has made both one. He's talking about now there's Jews and there's Gentiles. And this whole mindset of Jews and Gentiles is being shattered. Everybody is made right with God now through Jesus Christ and God's spirit at work. There's one way to God. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're born. Ethnicity has nothing to do with it. Family has nothing to do with it. Education has nothing to do with it. Finances has nothing to do with it. Jesus has everything to do with it. For he himself, verse 14, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments. You guys, we could never keep the commandments. That's not how you get saved. The commandments were breathing down our neck and condemning us and reminding us, you fall short, you fall short, you fall short. No matter how hard you try, you cannot perfectly keep the commandments. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. See, people make a mistake and think, even before they're a Christian, I'm not at war with God. There's no war. Well, the Bible says you are. You're an enemy. Before you come to Christ, you're an enemy. You're an enemy, and there's not peace between you and God. Doesn't matter how you feel. You're an enemy. There's no peace between you and God until you know Christ. So making peace, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. How? Through the, say it cross the final all-sufficient sacrifice lambs and goats and heifers and pigeons and doves and grain incense could never truly do it through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father verse 19 Concluding sentence, and it is glorious. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Oh, I hope that just settled into you in a sweet way. And here, let me say something that might tick some of you off, but I never do things like that. We got a day right now where we've got Christians making too much of their USA citizenship. Yes, it's discouraging. Yes, it's disheartening some of the things that are going on. You guys, we're the ones that are supposed to wake up every day saying, I'm concerned, that's discouraging, I'll pray, but I'm not going to go crazy because my, I'm a citizen of something greater that can't be taken. It's supposed to make your citizenship in heaven even sweeter as we lose this, as you see it change. This was never supposed to make you sleep good at night. Thank God for all the decades that America looked like it did. And it was so in alignment with biblical truth. Those days are over, my friend. And unless God does something incredible, they will stay over. But it's okay. 
Now you wake up every day even more saying, praise God, he saved me. Praise God, I know what matters most. Praise God, this is not my home. Praise God, I'm not staying here long. Praise God, I'm an alien stranger, exile in this land. My citizenship in heaven is even sweeter. And news for you who have messed up families. He's made you a member of the household of God. I don't know what family or group has rejected you. I don't know what family or group has cut you off and hurt you. I don't know what your family has done, how messed up it is. When you put your trust in Jesus, you are in his forever family. And nothing, nothing, nothing can change that. We wake up every day. I'm so grateful that all my kids are in relationship with us. But I know, I hope this doesn't shock my kids who are listening, but I know from being a pastor, all of a sudden something happens and some child goes and gets counseling and decides you've ruined their life and now they won't speak to you and you can't see the grandkids. It happens all the time in this broken world where something happens in your family that messes it up and it's deeply painful. I know, but oh my goodness, you're a part of a family that that will never happen. Never have. God does not one day change his mind about you. Why? Because his mind about you is based on his mind about Jesus. And Jesus doesn't change. Same yesterday. Say it. And say it again. Oh, that's so much better than what's happening in Washington. So much better than the news. So much better than everything in this world. Do what you can. Pray, write, vote. Sleep good. My pull out, you know, it's time for you to pull out your citizenship. How would you do that? Oh, hello. Get off the blogs. Stop all your subscriptions to Take Back America and take this back right here. You got to read about your citizenship. You got to read about this family, this family, this family. You know, it's, it's a silly criticism. The people that are most he- heavenly minded, I don't want to be no earthly good. You guys, the more heavenly minded I am, the more helpful I am in this world. When you lose sight of heaven and eternity and what matters most, you do not end up living in a helpful way right now, right here. You start looking like everybody else. Oh, read about your citizenship. Read about the family. Read about something eternal that cannot be taken away from you. God is in the business of reaching those who are far away. Not those that happen to be near him anyway. That happen to fit a certain category. He loves. He delights in reaching those who are far away. And bringing them into his forever family. And that leads to my final point. You see, God loves to showcase his grace in the midst of our sin. You guys, the Bible was never written to be an inspirational book that lifts up certain men and women and says, oh, look at him, be like him. Oh, look at her, be like her. It gets taught that way sometimes, sadly, especially in children's curriculum sometimes. It's all about these characters, these Bible characters, even like Noah, great guy, yes, For 400 years, he built the ark and he was being mocked, but he did it anyway. In the children's curriculum, they don't mention as soon as he got off the ark, he got naked and drunk. Oops. We don't tell the kids that. 
I'm not saying you have to tell the kids that. But as an adult, you need to know that. Not so that you can get naked and drunk also, but so that you can realize everybody God ever used is a mess. You're either an object of mercy or a trophy of grace. God uses messed up people. Messed up people. It's one of my greatest confidences that the Bible is actually inspired by God. That he includes the dirt on Bible heroes. If a committee of men and women had put this together to try to start a new religion, to trick people into believing all this, you would keep some of this stuff out. Out, but it's not out. It's in. It's not out. It's in. Why? Because God wants to showcase his grace in the midst of our sin. And it's certainly not. When you look at this uh, genealogy, it's certainly not just women on this list that have done something shameful. Uh Uh-uh. Let me conclude with two of the men on this list who were used by God despite horrific personal and moral failures. You see, Judah, all through the Bible is mentioned, Jesus is going to come through the line of the tribe of Judah. He's coming through the tribe of Judah. Judah, Judah. Judah was a man. And every time I read my Bible, I find myself thinking, wow, this guy is not a great guy. And yet God used him. Jesus came through Judah. Look how it's worded in verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And if you're not careful, we tend to think, oh my goodness, what a horrific woman that she would pretend to be. Uh, Let me help you. If you understand the backstory, it doesn't excuse her sin, but it makes her a sinner along with Judah being a big, fat, selfish, sinful, cold-hearted, disobedient to God sinner. Ooh, you say, Brad, what are you talking about? Well, you can read the whole thing in Genesis 38. Bengals don't play till one, so you can go home and read that. <laughs> you can read the whole thing in Genesis 38, and it's racy. But here's basically what went down. Tamar marries Judah's oldest son. The Bible simply says he was so wicked and so cruel, the Lord took him out of this world. So she marries his second son, and basically the same thing happens. So she's widowed twice, and you need to understand in that day, you got married at like 12 or 13. So she's probably a widowed teenage young girl at 16 or 17 years old now. And then Judah looks at her and says, live at your father's house until my son Sheila grows up. Now, Sheila was not like a nursing infant. Sheila was probably, I don't know, 9, 10, 11, and a few more years, he's marriageable. Why would Judah say that? I'll tell you why. Because in that day, since there wasn't welfare and there wasn't stuff to take care of widows, they had a thing called the the Leveret Marriage Law. And this was actually a law that was meant to protect And provide for people like Tamar. So that they would not just be destitute and economically crushed for the rest of their lives. The law basically said that Judah was to be a defender and provider for Tamar. And that if he had any other son, he was to see that that son married her and she was taken care of. But when his son Shelah was old enough in just a few years, he didn't do it. He didn't do it. And so Tamar plots. But she's been driven to this point. Again, don't hear me excusing her sin. I just want you to realize there's two sinners in this story, not one. Tamar plots to disguise herself as a prostitute. But even then, 
It's a little bit, I got to read in a little bit, but you guys, I hope most of you would think if I dress as a prostitute and stand outside my father-in-law's business, he's probably not going to pick me up. I hope you have that kind of father-in-law. What's going on here? Tamar knew this man must have this habit. Otherwise, why would you know? He's going to shear his sheep in this other town. If I dress as a prostitute and I'm on the side of the road, he will stop and have sex with me. He must have had this reputation, you guys. And so she disguises herself as a prostitute on the side of the road between where he lives and where he's going to shear his sheep. And sure enough, he stops and says, I want to have sex with you. And she says, what will you give me? He says, I'll give you a goat. She said, well, what are you going to give me in the meantime? And he gives her his staff and his seal, his signet seal. He was a well-to-do, respected, big-time man, if you had a seal, to keep in the meantime. I'll spare you the details. You can read it in Genesis 38. But it is all very awkward. And, And he is the bad guy. When it's found that she's pregnant, he immediately says, take her out and burn her. Oh, wow. And then she quietly says, well, I do want you to know I'm pregnant by the man who owns these things. Anybody recognize these? Ooh, super awkward. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they're mine. And literally, you can read it. Judah says, and there's a reason he says it, she is more righteous than I. He's not saying she's done no wrong. But in that moment, he, he is gripped with the fact that I have done a horrible thing. The word righteous there is sasak in Hebrew. And it was a courtroom term that simply meant when a judge was trying to settle and decide who should receive justice, this one. That's what he meant. That's how he was using it. He wasn't saying she's righteous, she's done nothing wrong. He's saying as this event goes down, if a judge had to look at this and say, who deserves justice? She. She is more righteous than I am. Oh my goodness. Unbeknownst to Judah, he has sex with his daughter-in-law who's disguised as a prostitute. Stay with me. But Judah, Tamar, and the boy, Perez, that was born from this mess of incest, deceit, and disobedience to God are all on the resume of our Lord Jesus Christ. Say wow. Wow. Is that how we think? No. Can't use people like that. We need to find somebody else. Can't use. God doesn't think like we do. But stay with me. You think. All right. What about David? I see his name there. King David. Ooh, he's a hero. What about David? He did some amazing things. Yes. He did some amazing things. What's being highlighted in this genealogy. Is not one of the amazing things. And there's a reason. Right? There's all kinds of ways this could have been stated. But literally, the words surrounding David's so often exalted and praised name are there intentionally to painfully and pointedly remind us not of anything of the great things he did, but of the horrific sin he committed. Because it was high-handed sin, you guys. Yes, a lot of people have committed adultery. It was high-handed sin. He sinned against God. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, which if you know the backstory from the Old Testament, was one of his best friends. And he sinned against the nation of Israel that he was called to lead and be an example of. David's 
adultery with Bathsheba is one of the most shocking and shameful in all the Bible. Because it has all the ingredients also of a date of, of a television drama, right? You've got sex, you've got alcohol, you've got political power, you've got murder, you've got betrayal, you've got conspiracy, and you even have a state-sponsored cover-up plot. It's all there in Second Corinthians eleven and Second Corinthians, Second Samuel eleven and twelve. Oh my goodness! Wow, that David thought. He could plot and scheme all this out and take what he wants and move on as if nothing happened. See, David saw Bathsheba and called her to him to have sex with him. Even though her husband Uriah was one of his best friends. If you read the Old Testament, you know Uriah was a part of that inner circle of some of the most valiant men. Uriah had stood by David when David had very few friends. David was not always King David, you guys. If you read the Old Testament, he spent years on the run as a fugitive, hiding in caves, wondering when he was going to die because the present King Saul was out to kill him. And Uriah was one of the few that stood by him. And protected him. That's who Uriah is. He knew this guy. Oh my goodness. David sinned against God. Bathsheba. Uriah. And after he commits adultery. Bathsheba sends word to him that she's pregnant. And instead of repenting. Oh it gets worse. He decides. First he's not on the battlefront. That wasn't good. In that day, it's kind of like when the kings went out to war. You know, every spring we think of putting mulch around the bushes. They thought of going killing another nation. Every spring, winter has lifted. Let's kill another nation. Let's burn down a city. That's what kings were supposed to do with their armies. They'd all gone out to battle, but David had not. Not good. But when she sends word that she's pregnant, he calls Uriah back from the battlefront, which is where he should have been, gets him drunk. I mean, this just gets worse and worse and worse. Sends him home, hoping he'll have sex with his wife so that he would think the baby was his. But Uriah is such a better man than David. Uriah sleeps outside his door and says, how can I enjoy my bed and my wife while all the other soldiers are still fighting? And so then David stoops even lower and gives him a sealed envelope that was basically his own death certificate. Can you imagine gives this man a letter and says, take it to the commander. And that letter said, put Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle and then pull back from him, everybody, so that he's killed. The sweet psalmist of Israel plotted all this. And it goes down just as David had planned. Uriah was killed. He waits the appropriate amount of time to let Bathsheba grieve. And then he sends for her to become his wife. Thinking all is well. And nobody knows. But all was not well. Because the final phrase of 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven soberly states. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You say, Brad, oh, you have shattered my ho, ho, ho Christmas. What is your point with this doobie, doobie down sermon here? Oh, listen, there's something to celebrate here. Notice, it's not us or any of the Bible characters. 
But oh, here's the point of this genealogy and this message. God wants us to be swallowed up in the wideness of his grace and stunned by the people he uses and the people he chooses to save. When you lift your eyes from reading these verses, God wants you to be gripped by the fact that there is nobody sitting here today. I'm going to say that again. There is nobody sitting here today who is outside the reach of God's grace. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter who you are. And it doesn't matter what's been done to you. There were some horrific things done to some of these people. God's grace is greater. One of my favorite verses is is Romans 5.20, where sin abounds. Do you hear some abounding sin in this? Woo! Sin is abounding. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Say it again. Much more. God's grace is always greater than our sin. And his reach is unlimited. And his kingdom has room for you. I'd say it to you this way. There's a seat at his banquet table for you. For you. Some of you think if I ever did get in, I would have to hover. I would have to serve in the kitchen. I'd be in the shadow. I'd be in a shed. I'd be second class. There's no second class, third class, fourth class. It's all in the kingdom at the big table with the best food, best drink, best lighting, along with everyone else, because there's only one hero in the Bible, and his name is? Everybody else is an object of mercy and a trophy of grace. Everybody. So let me push you a minute. If you have yourself in another category other than object of mercy, trophy of grace, and you think you're a Christian, you just might not be in the kingdom. Jesus said, I came for sinners. That is the starting place for salvation. Until you see, oh, I could never do this, then he can't save you. He can't save you. Your own self-righteousness, your own list, your own efforts, your own whatever are in the way. Put it down. You want to be, trust me, you want to be an object of mercy and a trophy of grace. And today, he would love to make you one. He's reaching for you. He's reaching. Will you come? This is, this is who our Savior is. And this is what he came to do. Save men and women that our world would discard. Pass by. Stamp as deformed, unable to be in. Come, come. I want you to bow your heads. And if there's someone here today at any of our campuses or listening online, and God's Spirit right now, maybe for the first time, has helped you to understand this. Oh my goodness. You mean I can just ask, I can put my faith in Jesus? And he would save me as I am, as I am. Yes, 
You don't have to get up and walk the aisle at any of our campuses. You don't have to shake any of the campus pastor's hands. You don't have to fill out a card and you don't have to give any money. But you do have to right now see yourself as in the same categories. Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, David, Judah, messed up men and women. And God's grace is greater. Just simply say, oh God, save me. A sinner. I invite Jesus into my life. Forgive me. Change me. Give me that citizenship. Bring me into your family. Oh God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your son. And thank you for a citizenship outside of this world and a forever family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.